0: Father, we pray now with Bibles open, hearts anticipating how you will speak to us through this psalm and your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, would you you show us things in this glorious word that we could not see apart from your help. So would you just Come and be with us in this time. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold glory in your word. And do this all, we pray now, God, for Jesus' sake. And it's in his name we pray together. And everybody said, Amen. Well, have you ever realized that our lives are always influenced by who is in control? Entire countries are influenced by who holds the political power at any given time. Your experience at work can either be good or bad, depending on who your boss is and what they're like. And a team's fate is determined by who is shooting the last shot in the final seconds of a tie game. In fact, have you ever noticed that whoever is driving the car you're in has influence over how you feel? Now, in uh, my experience, there are two types of people in the world. The first group or type of people are those that get behind the wheel and drive responsibly. Always completely stopping at stop signs and never, ever, ever, ever driving above the speed limit because that is just plain dangerous. But then there's the other group of people. At the moment they get behind the wheel, they immediately transform into an Indy 500 driver. Every road becomes a NASCAR track, and when you are riding with these people, they make you pray more, you experience more anxiety in your life, and you feel like you're riding with Liam Neeson in an action movie. Our lives are always influenced by who is in control. And this morning, I'm going to be speaking to you on the topic of God's sovereignty. This is the word ascribed to God all throughout the Bible To communicate his absolute rule and reign. But what does that word mean? Well, A.W. Pink, in his excellent book, The Sovereignty of God, defines God's sovereignty when he writes the following He writes, The sovereignty of God may be defined as the exercise of his supremacy being infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. And then he says this. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, as he pleases. Now, that is an excellent definition of sovereignty, a tongue twister for sure, but an excellent definition. Listen to it again. God does... As he pleases, only as he pleases, as he pleases. This is what it means that God is sovereignty. So the question is, if we are all influenced by who is in control at any given time, we must ask, what is God in control of? Or to frame it another way, what is God sovereign over? To answer that question, we're in Psalm 90, where I hope you return to. that We read just a few moments ago, this was a psalm written by Moses when the people of God were wandering in the wilderness. It's also the oldest psalm in the entire Psalter, and it is perhaps the clearest picture in all of the Bible of the eternal, sovereign nature of God. So, that's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And, and my aim is that as we walk through this psalm together, we're going to find three truths about God's sovereignty. Three truths about God's sovereignty. And these three truths have incredible implications on all of our lives. Three truths about God's sovereignty. We begin in verse 1. Look with me. He writes, "'Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations.'" The the, the word, the phrase rather, dwelling place, can be translated to mean home. What does that mean? It means that from the beginning of time, God has been sovereignly caring, providing, and loving all that He has made, especially His children. And while many of us have thought about this truth perhaps in connection with God's people, those of us who have been in church for any amount of time or have sat under the teaching of the Bible, we immediately think about how God sovereignly cares and ordains the life of his children. But I wonder, I wonder how many of us have ever considered this truth in connection with creation, that not only God is the source of care, provision, and love for all that he has made, being his people, but he's also those things. For what he's created. Moses hints at this, if you look with me in verse 2 as he continues to write. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you have formed the earth and the world. Have you ever considered that the mountains, the earth, and the entire universe itself all exist? Because as the author of Hebrews says, God upholds it all by the word of his power. So it is here that we find the first truth about God's sovereignty, which is this. God is sovereign over creation. Get this. All of creation obeys the will of God in perfect obedience. The wind goes where God sends it. The rain falls at God's command and thunder roars when God tells it to roar. And not a minute sooner, not a minute later. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, he wrote, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. He goes on to write, I believe that the falling of leaves from a tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God is in complete control over all Creation. Well, what is the grand ends of his sovereignty over creation? It is that his infinite glory might be displayed through the creation that he's created. There's so many passages we could look at this morning to prove this. I point you your direction to two. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the what? The glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Psalm 96, verses 11 to 12. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Why? Because God created all of it to show his glory to all that see it. Now, we might ask the question, why does that matter? I get that that's true, but why does it matter? How does it impact my life? Because, for this truth, because all of creation, from the grass in your front yard to the stars that you look up and see at night outside of your home, all of it is meant to remind us of this simple truth. He is God, we are not. He is God, we are not. Think about it. Because of God's sovereign care, the flowers of the field bloom, the sun shines, the trees grow, all apart from anything you and I contribute. Have you ever contributed to holding a star in the sky? Of course not. It is God who sovereignly is providing and sustaining all of these things. In every single moment, this is the case. And this serves as a reminder that he is sovereignly sustaining all things, not us. He is God, I am not. And the reason I tell you that, the reason that truth is so important to get down deep inside your heart and mind is because the moment you forget that, and we are all prone to it, you're prone to become two things. Number one, when you forget he is God, I am not, you become proud. In your pride, you begin to believe the lie that you are self-sufficient, that I have everything I need in and of myself. You begin to think things like, I'm such a good parent because I'm so wise. Things like, I've made so much money because I am so gifted and smart. Or, perhaps worse, I am so glad I'm not like so-and-so. All the while forgetting that it is God who created you and gave you everything you have. Friend, everything you have, God has given. In the moment we forget that he is God, I am not, we begin to think that life is all about me. And can I just remind us this morning that if God were to remove his hand of grace from our lives, for even just a second, we would cease to be. He is God, I am not. And when we forget that, we become proud of our own abilities and accomplishments. But that's not the only thing we're prone to become. Secondly, we're prone to become anxious. We forget He is God, I am not, we become anxious. I mean, we, a little honesty in church this morning. I know like six of you, but I feel like I've known you all forever, right? So um, let me ask a little question. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever experienced anxiety before? Okay, keep your hand up. Now look around. And the people that don't have their hands up, one of two things is happening. One, either they're not breathing, or two, they're too anxious to raise their hand. Okay, so you can put your hands down. So, so all of us have experienced anxiety. So the, the, the question is, not: do, does anyone experience that? Like it's a rare phenomenon. No, we all do. So the question is, why? Why did so many of us put our hands up? And, and why is it that some of you have come into this Service this morning and anxiety has just ravaged your heart. There's some things coming down the pike this week, maybe this month, maybe this year, and you're so anxious about it. It robs you of sleep, of joy, of life. Why? The answer for many of us is because we tend to believe the lie that we are in control and that everything depends on me. You trick yourself into thinking that your ability to have a successful career, to parent your children, to have the money you need, to handle that difficult conversation this week, to fight your besetting sin, and so on and so on, all depends on you. And as a result, you begin to trick yourself into thinking you're in control. Can I tell you, you are the best self-swindler you know. Nobody tells you more lies than you. And the lie that we tend to tell ourselves is that I am in. And when we do, we become anxious. So, anxiety is something we're all prone to. We tell ourselves this lie that we're in control and everything depends on me. How do we fight it? So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible. If you keep your finger in Psalm 90, turn with me to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you're anxious this morning, Matthew 6 is an incredible passage for you to fix your heart and mind on. In Matthew 6, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's gathered his disciples and most likely many other listeners around to hear him expound on the truth of the Torah and to explain his own authority to the people. And in doing so, he comes to Matthew 6, verse 25, and he begins to talk about anxiety. If you look with me, verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now stop there. How discouraging would it be if that just stopped there? Like Jesus gets up, people gather, welcome to church this morning. Don't be anxious. Thank you. Tim, come up. Right? Like incredibly discouraging. But but notice he doesn't stop there. He, he says, "Are you anxious?" First, let me remind you, life is so much more than the things you're worried about. But then he continues on. Look at verse 26. He says something rather strange. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into bards. In other words, he steps back and he says, have you ever seen a bird farming? If you did, you had some bad pizza. For the most of us, absolutely not. Of course not. That's absurd. But then notice what he says next. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then he continues on. He, he goes on to talk about a flower, to use it as an example, to show that if God causes flowers to grow, will he then not give you everything you need to flourish in this life? And then he says in verse 33, and this is so important seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What's he saying? Here's the point Jesus says that one of the ways you battle anxiety is by looking out in creation and reminding yourself that God is sovereign over all of it. That's how you fight anxiety. You remind yourself, he's the one who feeds the birds and causes the flowers to grow, not me. And if God cares for such insignificant things without imperishable souls, friends, how much more will he provide for you exactly what you need, exactly when you need it? That's the point. If God provides food for the birds and they don't go starving he's going to give you exactly what you need therefore we do not need to be anxious today because he is God we are not God cares for you and God is often rather I should say all the time more willing to carry your burdens than you are to cast them to him So Moses confidently says in verse 1 of Psalm 90, you can turn back there, he says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations because God is sovereign over creation, which serves to remind us of this glorious truth. He is God, I am not. He continues on in in verse 2 of Psalm 90, he says, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. Now, stop here, and I want you to imagine a scenario. Tonight, you go home, and you go maybe to a coffee shop or the grocery store, and someone comes up to you and asks you this question. How old is God? What do you say? So, a couple weeks back, preaching a message similar to this at College Park North Indy, and a kid raised his hand, front row, no joke. And he said, 35! Well, that is incredibly discouraging for somebody because you're older than God, right? How old is God? Asking how old is God is like asking the question, how wet is water? There's no category for an answer. We don't know God's age because he's ageless. So Moses says, from everlasting eternity past, to everlasting eternity future. You are God. So, how old is God? As old today as he ever was. As old today as he ever was. He continues writing in verse 3. He says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Oh, this is a glorious text. And it is here that we find the second truth about God's sovereignty, which is this God is sovereign over time. He's sovereign over time over time. Whereas we exist in time, God exists beyond time. Isaiah 57.15 says, God inhabits eternity in such a way that a thousand years, verse 4, are like a day in the eyes of God. Think about all that happens in a thousand years. Generation after generation after generation, empires rise, empires fall. More empires rise, more empires fall. We have formation, reformation, counter-reformation, a thousand years of history is like a sneeze to God. Just think about our own country. We've existed for around 250 years. Friends, that's like a blink to him. That's a matter of mere minutes in God's perspective. Our God is sovereign over time in complete control of all of it, and he is unchanging throughout time, removed from the implications of it. It's like Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, God is God. If you logically think about this, you let your mind Dwell on this. What this means is get this God's attributes don't change through time. That's incredibly hopeful. We are not so. The way we look changes over time. I thank God for that because when I was in seventh grade, ooh, ooh, I mean, now, right? Look at me now, it's gotten so much better. But at the time, Huh. So we, the way we look changes over time. The way we think changes over time. We grow in knowledge and change in skill over time. Guys, we're able to do things at 40 that we couldn't do at 15. And vice versa. There's some things at 15 we could do that we can't do at 40. Right? Like at 15, you fall down and hurt yourself, and a few hours later, you're better. When you're 40, you hurt yourself sleeping. Right? Like, Pastor Chris, when he takes a nap, he hurts himself, right? Like, we, we change over time. God is not so. Time is nothing to him because he is completely and totally sovereign over it. This brings me to this point. Let me just tell you, friend, if you know this God and you feel big, you don't know this God. It is impossible to know the God of the Bible and feel Big. Look at verse 5. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. You know what this means? Our lives are like grass, like the grass of Indiana and Michigan. Like, I love the summertime because you can actually see grass. It's green. It's growing. But let's not deceive ourselves. In a few months, it will be buried, right? You can't see it anymore. Now, some of you thought, we're never inviting this guy back because he just reminded me of that. But it's true. Grass grows, and we love it. But then a few months later, it's gone. And what Moses is saying is that's like your life. Our lives are incredibly short, are they not? So a woman at my previous ministry setting who I love dearly. She recently turned 105 And on her 103rd birthday, I visited her at her her home, and so much this woman has experienced. I mean, a century of life. All the things that she's experienced, socioeconomic tides up and down. She went through the Great Depression. She has seen cultural tides come and go. So I just asked her, I said, tell me a couple things. What have you learned? And she said this one thing. She said, what I've learned is the days are long, but the years are short. The days are long, but the years are short. And can I just speak to parents for a moment? The days are so long, aren't they? Kids crying, want to kill each other, and you're thinking, i got to get away, right? And, and sometimes, in the midst of long days, we tend to, do not view them as blessings. We, we don't have a long game view. This is a nine inning game and you're in the first inning. And friend, can I just tell you, the older saints in here, you need to help the younger saints in this church realize that the days are long but the years are so short because you look back and immediately you see it was so fast. So fast. Don't dread those days. And for those of us, like myself without children, the singles in here, can I just tell you Love, life, enjoy it, take every day as a gift. We should not presume that God owes us the next hour of our lives. Instead, he gives every second as a gift to enjoy. How are you doing with that? The days are long, but the years are so short. Our lives are like grass. Flourishes in the morning, but in the evening, it's gone. Look at verse 10 makes the point again he says the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80 yet their span is but toil and trouble they are soon gone and we fly away so moses prays in verse 12 he says so in light of all of that light of our lives being short god being sovereign over creation and time here's what i ask so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom why would Moses pray such a prayer? Because nothing causes one to live with urgency and passion for God, like remembering your days are numbered. Nothing. John Piper puts it well when he writes the following, there is scarcely any thought that will purge our priorities of vain and worldly perceptions like the thought of our imminent death. Oh, how cleansing it is to ponder the kind of life we would like to look back on and when we come to die. It's incredibly wise. You stand on the other side of your life. What do you want your life to stand for? When you repeatedly think about your death. Jonathan Edwards did this all the time. And it led him to write in one of his resolutions that I live with all my might as long as I live. When you begin numbering your days and living for what will last forever, you will begin to realize that how much money you make doesn't really matter. What you do with the money you make matters. When you begin to number your days, you'll realize the people around you are far more important than the things on your to-do list. When you begin to number your days, parents, you'll realize that the most important thing in your child's life is not the clothes they wear, not the sports that they play. Get this, it's not even the grades they make. It's that they know God. And even for your own life, you'll realize when you number your days that the obedience and love of God are far more important than accomplishments you achieve or positions you obtain. Nothing, nothing compares to the knowledge and love of God. So, friends, I plead with you. Remember this statement. I have this written in the front page of my journal and return to it every morning. Live today for what will last forever. Live today for what will last forever. Live today for what will last in matter 10 billion years from now. Don't live for that which will burn up and go with your body into the grave. Verse seven, he goes on, he says, for we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. What is Moses doing? He's, he's giving the answer to the question we all ask at some point in our lives. Why does death exist? Why, why, why is it that our days are numbered? Verse 7 is simply a preamble to what Paul would later write in Romans 5, verse 12. When he says, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. We experience the wrath of God in death because we rebelled against the goodness of God in sin. That's why. Here's the simple truth. All sin robs us of life. Friends, do not be deceived. For some of you that are indulging in verse 8, secret sins, and you think, nobody knows. God sees it. And what God is saying through Psalm 90 to you this morning is that your secret sin is robbing you of the life, joy, and satisfaction that God intends for you to experience. And every time you indulge in sin, you are bringing forth death into your life. That's true of all of us. Every time we choose to sin, it's bringing more death into our lives. Death of joy, death of love, death of satisfaction in Christ. Death. So Moses says in verse 9, For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The brevity of life exists because of the depravity of heart. Death exists because sin exists. So Moses asked in verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Can I just say this is something in the western church we don't do enough? When's the last time you considered God's wrath? When's the last time you just, you just got low before the Lord and you, you thought about his wrath? Friends, if we want a God without wrath, we don't want the God of the Bible. So when is the last time you've considered God's wrath? The Bible teaches that God's wrath is eternal. Hell is never described as a temporary place. Revelation 14, 19, and 20 describe hell as a place that lasts forever and ever. It says forever, even as a word, wasn't enough. You have to add on the clause and ever to help us understand. It's forever and ever and ever and ever without end. Jonathan Edwards once preached on the eternality of hell. And with tears in his eyes, he said these words, Hell is not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages, at the end of which people will realize they are no closer to the end than when they first began. There is real, eternal wrath awaiting sinners before a Holy. Which helps us to understand Moses' words in verse 13. He says, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. What is he doing? The only thing that we can do before this eternal God is plea for mercy. Because all of us are deserving of his eternal wrath. And so Moses pleads for mercy. Which makes our last truth about God's sovereignty so much sweeter? God is sovereign over salvation. Look at verse 14. I love this. He says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. The word steadfast can literally be translated to mean never-ending and never-failing. God's never-ending and never-failing love can satisfy us. How How is it that sinners like us can be satisfied by the never-ending love of God? Because God sent what was most precious to Him, His Son. To live the life that we could not. And upon the cross, all the wrath, the eternal wrath that we deserve was poured out on His Son. So that at the resurrection from the dead, those who place their faith in Jesus then will not experience his eternal wrath, but his eternal goodness. For for, for Christians, get this, for Christians, death is not the end of our story. Death is just simply a doorway we walk through to meet Christ. That's what Paul says to the Philippians. He says, listen, to die is gain, because when I die, I get Christ. For many of us, we've talked about hell. Let's talk about heaven for a moment. How we view heaven can often be flawed. I just got good news for you today. If you don't take anything away from the sermon, let it be this. Heaven is not a never-ending choir practice in the clouds. That would be terrible, right? Like You die, see Jesus, and then Tim is standing there leading the heavenly choir singing, great I am again and again and again and again and again you know and you got to stand and sing the whole time because there's no tithing in heaven right it would be it would be terrible I, I loved him but that that's not heaven no the bible says heaven is a physical place that when we go there we will dwell with God's people All who have trusted in Christ will dwell with them and then we will experience the eternal goodness of God more and more and more and more. Just as condemned sinners will experience the eternal wrath of God forever and ever, those who are redeemed in Jesus will experience his eternal goodness forever and ever. You will never be bored with God in heaven, ever. There will be more goodness and more goodness and more goodness and more goodness For eons and eons and eons of time. For those who know Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning. And your heart is filled with hope and love. And you just say inside, oh I can't wait for that. You're a miracle. You're a miracle. Because at some point in your life, God sovereignly put people in your life. Maybe it was born in a Christian home. And God's sovereign goodness, maybe it was someone you met at school or at work, you, you met someone, God sovereignly brought someone your way to share the gospel with you, and then what God did is he sovereignly opened your eyes to see the horror of your sin and the beauty of his grace, and he drew your tears to himself, gave you faith, you placed that faith in Jesus, you are a new creation destined for eternal goodness forever and ever. And God did that. And that should... That should leave us. We should leave this place doing with what Moses said in verse 14. Rejoicing and being glad all our days. What what can happen to us that can rob us of this joy? We have an eternal inheritance that will last forever. and, And God bought that for us through his son. Therefore, we rejoice and we're glad. But maybe you're here today and you don't know this God. And there's something just deep down inside where you just just know, I don't know him. I don't know him. Can I just say it is not an accident you're here? It's not an accident that I'm here talking about the psalm, sharing these things from the Bible, that you're sitting in the seat you're sitting in, hearing these things. Can I just tell you, the God of the universe is pursuing you this morning. And, And what he Wants. What he wants is he longs for your thirsty heart to be satisfied in himself. And so what he's saying this morning is will you just lay down your life and come and come and experience true, lasting joy. This is what God desires for all of us, that we would realize that, that joy is found in him in him alone. St. Augustine, who's one of my favorite early church fathers, was once standing in North Africa. He was looking out over the landscape, and he saw the sun setting. He saw the stars coming out in the sky, a gentle breeze rustling against his skin. And as he looked at all the beautiful colors in the sky and just absorbed the beauty, he wrote this in his journal. If these are the joys afforded to sinful men, what does God have in store for those who love him? Think about the most beautiful, joyous time you've ever had in your life. And if that was such a joyous experience, what more does God have in store for those who trust in Jesus? So therefore, we're filled with hope. Amen? That when we leave this place, no matter what happens this week, next month, next year, the rest of our lives, we know God is sovereignly working all those things together for our good and his glory that one day we're going to spend forever with him. And for that we say, yes, yes. Let's pray together. Father, we are just so grateful that This is true. Lord, our souls would be lost if this weren't true. And instead, those of us who know Christ, we are filled with joy and we rejoice today. So, Lord, would you, for those of us who know you, would you just fill our hearts with an urgency, knowing that our lives are incredibly short, that your glory is forever, and you would help us to live for that. Help us not to be proud or anxious. Help us to remember that you... We're sovereignly working all things together in the world that we live to remind us that you are God, we are not. And then for those of us who don't know Jesus, I pray that you would use this time, this message, your word, your spirit to open their eyes so that they would find hope in Jesus alone. Cause us now in this song to just proclaim it with joy, knowing that we are who you say we are in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray together. And everybody said, amen.